Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. This is episode number 187. The new year brings me fresh energy and perspective, and I'm pouring that into today's podcast, along with the latest on Life After Family Tree Maker software, which we'll talk more about. I'll give you a fresh look at why family history software is still relevant today. You'll hear some new strategies for using Google to answer your genealogical research questions. And I'll tell you why I am so excited about Roots Tech 2016, which is coming right up. I'm also welcoming a brand new guest to the show today, legal genealogist Judy Russell. She talks about genealogy cruises and researching the law that applied to our ancestors' lives. Better yet, she takes on a Genealogy Gems listener's fantastic question about the bounty land that his War of 1812 ancestor never claimed. And as always, you'll hear about some new records online and up-to-the-minute emails with questions, tips, and inspiring successes. There's so much to talk about, so let's jump right into it with the news. Yes, the big news in December of 2015 is that Family Tree Maker software was discontinued by Ancestry. So last month, Ancestry.com announced that it would stop selling its popular Family Tree Maker software. During 2016, the software is going to continue to work and it will sync fully with their online ancestry trees, which it has done in the past. Their member services will still answer user questions and they will address major bugs and compatibility updates. But as of 2017, Ancestry.com will no longer provide updates or support Family Tree Maker users. Well, a firestorm certainly followed that announcement. Response in the comments section of Ancestry's blog was a landslide of really justifiable discontent, a lot of unhappy users. My first blog post on this news had reached nearly 30,000 people. It kind of went viral on Facebook the last time I checked. And uh, because it's it's such a concern to so many people, um, I'm going to link in the show notes for this episode to the full post so that you can check that out if you are a Family Tree Maker user and didn't catch that over the holidays. The bottom line on this whole scenario is that uh, I think this was purely a business decision on Ancestry's part. And that's okay. You know, Ancestry didn't do well in business. And that's okay, because if Ancestry didn't do well in business, we wouldn't have such easy and convenient access to all of their records. So I get why they were making business decisions um, on how to move forward into the future. And that's okay, because if Ancestry didn't do well in business, we wouldn't have such easy and convenient access to all of those records. And I think discontinuing Family Tree Maker is really a strategic move on their part. I'm sure it's more profitable to quit producing and shipping all of those CDs, you know, the physical software. But the bigger picture is that digital content is more profitable, and it's easier for Ancestry to control. So this includes your family trees. Having your tree solely on Ancestry.com in a digital format as part of their family trees area of the website. 
Ancestry wants everyone to enter their family tree data directly into the Ancestry website and not have it privately tucked away on your own computer. Because the truth is, your genealogical information really is financially valuable to them and to any website provider that's out there. When we contribute our data, that data has value for anybody who has a um, genealogy website of any kind or any kind of a website of any kind. Certainly, as we do our Google searching, the kind of searches that we do has value to Google. When we are on Facebook, that has value to Facebook to help sell advertising, to get the demographics of who's out there working on it. So this isn't a new concept to Ancestry by any means. In the weeks following the news, I have received loads of comments and questions by email and on Facebook. And of course, there's no way I can address all of those questions here today, but I will hit some highlights, especially on points that relate to everyone, uh, not only users of Family Tree Maker, because I know not everybody is a user of Family Tree Maker, but I think there are some important lessons and concepts here for all of us. In fact, the Family Tree Maker apocalypse uh, inspired me to a new appreciation of the importance of using family history software, period. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But first, let's talk about some new records that are online. That's always good news. Tons of old records have newly appeared online in the past month, and I think they are really worth mentioning. So let's start with FamilySearch.org, which everyone should dig into regularly because it's free. What's better than that? There are some great new or updated collections of civil registrations for Tasmania, Australia, and those range from 1839 to 1938. Manila in the Philippines, 1899 to 1984, and extended records for varying time periods for several regions of Italy. There are new electoral records, too, over a million and a half indexed entries from Wales dating back to 1839, and 1.7 million indexed records for Kent, England, dating back to 1570. Oh, yeah, that's on my list. <laughs> that affects uh, my husband's family tree, so we'll be looking at that. And I told you we're going to talk about Roots Tech, and that is right around the corner. It's just a few weeks away. I hope I'm going to see you there. Uh, last year, more than 20,000 people attended Roots Tech, which is now really the largest by far annual family history event in the world. It's sponsored by Family Search and held in Salt Lake City each February near the Family History Library in the heart of the beautiful Rocky Mountains of the Western United States. Roots Tech 2016, it promises to be another amazing event this year. You can choose from over 200 classes. They have a lot of different labs and workshops where you can get kind of hands-on. Fascinating keynote speakers, sponsored lunches and evening entertainment, or some late-night library research sessions. You could tuck those into your schedule. I love Roots Tech because I meet thousands of family history lovers uh, from all over the world. There's an energy there that you just don't find anywhere else. And it's a ton of fun. In fact, I love Roots Tech so much that, again, I'm coming this year. Genealogy Gems will have an even bigger presence there in that big, huge, exciting exhibit hall that they have. I'm giving four official Roots Tech lectures um, plus, I'm doing one for the Innovator Summit, which is going to be on Wednesday, just before the uh, main event of Roots Tech. 
and our contributing editor, Sunny Morton, and our DNA diva, Diane Southard, are also going to be presenting, and you will be able to meet them at our booth. Uh, we are going to be uh, right there, gosh, towards the front of the exhibit hall. I think 1250 is one of our booth numbers. We have a block of four booths, and it's going to be a really exciting, huge new exhibit booth area that we have. Now, if you've been to my booth at a major conference in the last couple of years, then you already know about what we call the outside the box mini sessions, little training sessions, uh, about 20, 30 minutes long each in our booth. We presented those with some partners in the past. Well, these sessions have been so popular that people ended up lining the walkways around our booth and several people deep um, crowding in the exhibit hall aisles to listen and to sign up, of course, for our free handout. We always do a free ebook of all of the handouts of all of our sessions. Well, this year, I'm planning an even richer class experience at the Genealogy Gems booth. I'm really excited about this. There are going to be 20 sessions, some of them shorter and some longer, uh, taught by myself and my other dynamic partners at Genealogy Gems and um, Family Tree Magazine. Of course, you know, I do the Family Tree Magazine podcast. So it makes sense that we're kind of all together under one big umbrella. I have quadrupled the size of the booth so that we can invite a lot more of you to come on in, have a seat, get off your feet, you know, uh, enjoy the sessions in comfort. And of course, get all those wonderful handouts by a digital ebook that we'll send you after the sessions. Now it's gonna it would take too long to list uh, all the classes we're going to be teaching. But I will tell you that each of us myself, GEMS contributing editor Sunny Morton, Diane Southard, and some of the popular Family Tree Magazine authors like Lisa Alzo and Denise Levenick will all be giving lectures on our favorite core topics. I'm going to teach several topics I'm super passionate about. Cloud-based computer backup, Google Power Strategies. Um, We're going to do some fabulous new tips and tricks for your tablet and your smartphone for genealogy. Evernote for both beginners and advanced users and a lot more. And there'll be talks on DNA by Diane, um, family archiving from Denise Levenick, Eastern European research from Lisa Alzo, and Sunny's going to be doing church records and family history writing. Now you can check out all of this, the whole schedule at genealogygems.com slash roots tech. There you'll find the, the downloadable schedule. We have a entry form for a big, huge grand prize that we're going to be giving away at Roots Tech. And you can also get the free Roots Tech app, and you'll find lots of information there as well under Genealogy Gems, Lisa Louise Cook's Genealogy Gems. And remember, if you register for Roots Tech before January 18th, you're going to save a lot of registration cost. Uh, You pay $169 instead of the $249 for the four-day event. So in the show notes for this episode 187, you'll find a link to our Roots Tech landing page, which again is genealogygems.com slash Roots Tech. And uh, this year we're calling it the Think Tank, which I think is really appropriate. We're getting lots of great heads together to um, come up with some new and exciting ideas and strategies for your family history. And that's what we're going to be doing at our booth. So uh, come check that out. And also, exciting news. We're going to have my brand new book. It's called Mobile Genealogy, How to Use Your Tablet and Smartphone for Family History Research. I'm so excited about this. 
Roots Tech is going to be the official launch of the book. Uh, we've been doing pre-order sales. So if you haven't seen that in the newsletter, now's the time because we're offering 10% off of the brand new book in our Genealogy Gems store. Head to uh, genealogygems.com, click store in the menu, you'll find it there. And this book is really a takeoff from Turn Your iPad into a Genealogy Powerhouse, but it goes way beyond that. I've used the same basic structure because my approach to mobile computing remains the same in terms of how I look at it, how I kind of structure it, and how I decide which apps are really the key apps to work with. But this book takes it so much farther because we're not just talking about the iPad. We are talking about smartphones and tablets, Android and Apple. Um, I've got absolutely everything that you would need, no matter which platform that you're using. We start out first with kind of the mindset to have in this, um, what the applications are. We've got tons of great apps and not just uh, the newest and best apps that are out there, but also far more in depth you're going to find a lot more user strategies on how to use these apps step by step for your genealogy research. And that was something I really wanted to do in this new book. Of course, also uh, towards the back of the book, we have all the great functionality of these tablets, both on the Android and the Apple side, and some of the newest features that are coming out that, you know, it's amazing. You get a new tablet for Christmas and there's no major user manual, or if there is, it's just like, who wants to sit down and read all that? Why not get this book as your user manual so that as you're learning how to use your device, you're really learning how to do better genealogy research as well. And so that you feel like you've really gotten the most out of it. Isn't that the key? You know, we think, well, we want to get our mobile device so we can hit the road and do our genealogy research. But um, then we get out there and it's not quite so obvious. So we've tried to make it very clear and concise. And I hope exciting and inspiring to you as well. So the book is Mobile Genealogy, How to Use Your Tablet and Smartphone for Family History Research. You can find it at the website and we will have lots of them at Roots Tech. If you come to Roots Tech, though, come early because typically I know last year when we had the new edition of the toolbox book for Google, we sold out, I think on the two and a half days into it. So hopefully we won't have to take any back in a suitcase, right? Come on by and you can pick up your copy and we'll sign it for you. How about that? If you want my old John Hancock on there. All right. Um, oh, other exciting news around here, where I'm from. Remember the Where I'm From Poetry Contest that I ran in 2015, right at the end of the year. Well, I received eight recorded entries, and truly all of them are absolutely wonderful. Now, I had planned to randomly draw one winner, uh, but I changed my mind. Instead, all entrants, all eight of them, are going to receive one year of Genealogy Gems Premium Membership. Or if they're already a member, they're going to get one year added on to their membership. They took the time to think about their family history, write their own poem. Uh, They overcame their nerves to call in and record it on the voicemail and share it with all of you. So to me, that really shows above and beyond dedication to family history. So see, it pays to call into the voicemail line and share your thoughts and ideas haven't you really enjoyed these? I've been seeing people on Twitter talking about how much they're enjoying hearing the poems. And in fact, I have another one for you here in this episode. 
My name is Beverly Field. I am from a fire started long ago from a ship landing on a Chesapeake shore in 1673 to a California address of 1403 when Mom knew so little about our pedigree. Earning that campfire girl bead began my search for ancestors, a journey taking me to the foreign climes of England, Ireland, and Germany. I am from a fire started by a Cherokee Indian maid in eastern Tennessee. She met a boy brought over the mountains from Maryland by missionaries on fire with the flame of conversion. Her hearth fire fed twelve children well. Their son fanned the flame of a crucible to molten silver ore into silverware, sold far and wide, even back in D.C. I am from the smoke curling into the trees from revolutionary battles and charred cabins burned by those whose land had been stolen. I am from the smoke that tanned skins and cured meat, that fed men who built, built homes of granite and cedar, and made well houses along rushing streams. I am from the smoke of guns fired north against south. I am from hidden caches of treasured food, hid in smoke houses sought after by armies looting. I am from the fire and smoke of a preacher's cabin fireplace, built on the county line so one half the room was in one and the other side another. Convenience was a choice for lovers of where to stand, tying the knot, a license procured beforehand. I am the fire that burned down the cabin and destroyed the family Bible. I am the hunter of generations lost in fires and the smoke of ages. I am from the fire stoked by brawny men powering a steam engine rushing west to the smoggy valleys of L.A., I am from the smoke and fumes of autos barreling down the freeway, leading me to and fro, searching for stories of where I came from long ago. You'll hear from more winners in coming episodes as well. All right, well, coming up next, let's hear from more of you. We'll do that over at the mailbox. My proud old dad Who knows that we are winning And I bet he's glad But more than any other A line from my old mother Bring me a letter From my hometown Well, speaking of where I'm from, Catherine wrote to me recently. She says, I listened with interest to Sonny's interview with George Ella Lyon on your Genealogy Gems podcast, episode number 185. I thought the name sounded familiar. So I walked over to the shelf at our elementary school library. And yes, indeed, there are three of her picture books sitting there. All three are lovely family oriented stories. One is called Mama is a Minor. Then there's Come a Tide, and she says, my favorite, Cecil's story, about a young boy worried that his father will not return from the Civil War. I also appreciated her folksy dedications at the front of each book. In the flood book, 
She writes, for friends and neighbors in Harlan County, Kentucky, and for everyone who ever dug out. In the Civil War book, she wrote, in memory of my great-great-grandparents, Esther and Addington Bruton, and for Steve and Barbara. And in the more contemporary mining book, she wrote, to miners everywhere and for my mama, Gladys Fowler Hoskins, and all her work. She says, this is a lady who loves and appreciates her family, both present and past. Well, I certainly agree with that, Catherine. Thank you so much for writing in about that. And, uh, oh, here in the mailbox also, after the Family Tree Maker news broke, and I began commenting on it, I heard, again, from so many of you, and Sue wrote in, she writes, uh, thank you so much for your article in your newsletter today on what to do about Ancestry.com, and that they will no longer produce or support Family Tree Maker. You really made the whole issue make sense. The real reasons businesses make the decisions they do. The bottom line is always financial. I am still new to genealogy and bought Family Tree Maker in 2014 when I joined Ancestry.com. However, after receiving the email from Ancestry Tuesday night, I realized I had to do something right away and I stopped using Family Tree Maker as my backup to my trees on Ancestry.com. I figured out on my own to go to Roots Magic, so I signed up with them yesterday. So glad you recommended them in your newsletter today. But I had not done anything about backup of my ancestry files. So I followed your suggestion today and I signed up with Backblaze. I feel much better about this whole situation. Thank you, Lisa. Keep up the great work you do. Well, I'm really glad that helped. And thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate that. And Charles also wrote in to me with an absolutely logical family tree maker question. He says, correct me if I'm wrong, but Family Tree Maker software is self-contained within one's computer and will function as long as someone wants to use it. In other words, there's no emergency need to transfer to RootsMagic or other software. Ancestry.com and its tree system is alive and well and can be continually updated via GEDCOMS from one's current Family Tree Maker for as long as one desires. The key problem is that support for Family Tree Maker will soon disappear. I'm sure Charles has not been the only person thinking this way. And Charles, you're right that the key problem is that support will be gone. Into the future, though, as operating systems and hardware change, eventually Family Tree Maker users will likely experience problems. And ultimately, you're going to be unable to continue reinstalling it onto new computers. And this happened to me with my very first database. You know, I used it for a couple of extra years, and then eventually I could not get it on to my new computers. So it's not an emergency now, as uh, Charles points out, but there is an advantage to migrating right now. Um, other software companies, they're very focused right now on what's happening with Family Tree Maker customers. Um, many of them have offered some really great um, specials on their software in order to kind of help you make the move over now. And right now, they're all very focused on this, very knowledgeable with assisting Family Tree Maker users and making sure that you can successfully migrate all of your data. So, you know, if you wait a couple of years down the road, you may not have people uh, with the new software programs who are as familiar with fam the old family tree maker, or they're not as focused on and, and up to speed on how to make that migration smoothly. It's easier to do it now and to get the most help available now while people are really thinking about it. 
So, for example, Roots Magic was offering um, Family Tree Maker users the full version of Roots Magic, and they included their print tutorial book so that you could get that as well to help you make the transition. And Roots Magic does have options for both Windows and Mac users. So you're not stuck if you're a Mac user. You can work with that platform as well. MyHeritage is also offering family tree makers who sync their family tree with their MyHeritage family site unlimited tree capacity on their online family site, which is normally limited to about 250 people on a free account. And Reunion 11 for the Mac, thanks to Bill, who wrote in to tell me that Reunion 11 by Lester Productions for the Mac has a web page. It's called Moving Your Tree from Family Tree Maker to Reunion. So they are all focused on it right now, and that makes that transition so much easier for you. Plus, you don't have the headache of uh, waking up one day and realizing, oh, you have a new computer and uh, you can't get the software onto it, and all of a sudden you do have an emergency on your hands. So I'm going to link in the show notes for this episode to all of the stuff we're talking about here, along with several more articles that I've written about the demise of Family Tree Maker. These articles answer questions like, why not to continue to use the retired software? Which software I recommend and why? Uh, What deals are out there right now for Family Tree Maker users? What options there are for Mac users? We just published that. And uh, answering the questions like, should I still keep my Ancestry subscription or transfer to MyHeritage, which does offer free desktop family history software that syncs with your online tree. I know there's lots of questions, but don't panic. Uh, It's not an emergency as in the whole thing is going to self-destruct, you know, at the end of the day. But it is wise, I think, to move promptly to have a good strategy. And, And I, as I've always said, I'm a very firm believer of hosting the data on a software program on my own computer that I control, and then secondarily, having that computer fully backed up to the cloud. And of course, you know that I recommend Backblaze. You can learn more about that at backblaze.com slash Lisa, and you will see my face there smiling at you and um, encouraging you to make sure that your data is all backed up. Because in reality, you could just put all of your data on a website. And and yes, there are family trees out there. But if that's the only place it is, you really are in the end, putting it in their hands. And what that means, you know, we all know that companies come and they go, and they buy and they sell. And if you take the appropriate precautions on your own computer, with firewalls, with uh, antivirus protection, Uh, those kinds of things that help protect your computer from hacking and theft. And then you back it up on a service like Backblaze so that you have copies off-site and available on the cloud should anything terrible um, happen to your computer or at your home. You will still have that backup copy. Um, Having multiple copies is a very good way to go. So we've got your back on this, and we'll continue to publish any information that comes in handy. You'll look for that in our newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter yet, be sure and head to genealogygems.com and sign up for the free Genealogy Gems newsletter. It comes out every week. And also here in the mailbox, how about Google searching? Let's talk about Google. Um, Not long ago, I shared a question from Lydia on a new, she's a new podcast listener, And this was on my blog and in my weekly newsletter. 
Her question and the answer that I shared led another listener to some success of her own. So first, here's the original question that I got from Lydia. She says, I have two relatives, great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, who died under conditions where an inquest was conducted. I wrote to the county clerk's office in Joplin, Missouri. They were only able to send me the bill, in quotation marks, for both inquests, stating that they had no other information. What I want to know, what they didn't answer, was, are they the ones to ask for the inquest report? If it still exists, who would have it? Well, what an interesting mystery. I mean, how unusual, two mysterious deaths in the family within two generations. And what a specific answerable question. Where are the coroner's inquest reports for the county and time period? Perfect. A question like this practically begs me to use Google to answer it. I brought up some great leads that I passed on to Lydia using Google, along with the Google search strategies that I did use to get those leads. And that way she and everyone else can try them too. And in a few minutes, you'll see exactly what happened. First, what I did was I ran a Google search with the keywords, Coroner's Inquest 1928, Missouri, because this was the year of the first one. What should Google give me in search results but Coroner's Inquest database at the Missouri Digital Heritage Archive? From there, you can discover how to request copies of records. Now, interestingly, when I searched for her two relatives, I didn't find them in the database that they had at the Missouri Digital Heritage Archive, but there was a file for a woman with the same surname, Esterline. Pretty unique surname. It's worth seeing if somehow she was related as well. Now, I was suspicious about no other Esterlines coming up in the database because she knew that there had been a coroner inquest. So I tried to search to see if other cases from that same town or county come up in the results because they were covering the entire state of Missouri, and they don't. So further digging revealed the coroner's inquest database project is ongoing. Additional counties will be added to the database as completed. That's what they had written on their website. So it would be very worthwhile to contact the digital archive, maybe by email, and inquire as to whether this particular county that she's researching in is in the queue to get into the database and to find out also where the physical files are now. Even if they haven't been digitized yet, these folks are working on it and they will know where the original files are housed because they've got their eye on them, right? And then another result that I got in that Google search actually gave me a page that listed all of the different counties that the archive currently has, and that reconfirmed they didn't have this county done yet. After searching a single database that I find on a website like Missouri Digital Heritage, I always like to go back to like the main homepage, look for a global search, a search box that covers the entire website, not just digging into one particular database. And so I did a global search in the main search box of Missouri Digital Heritage for the name Esterline, just to see if it came up with anything else. And it brings up not only death certificates, which I'm sure Lydia probably already has, but it brought up city directories and some newspapers, and some more items. So what next? Well, I always recommend that genealogists get to know their record sources. 
And again, through my Google searching, I discovered the Laws of Missouri Relating to Inquests and Coroners, book 1945. It it was some kind of a a report that's been digitized, and I found it through a Google search. And this may provide even further insight. And the Family Search Wiki, uh, which I've talked about here on the show before, is really always invaluable. That's where I go to find out about locations and jurisdictions and the records they can they have. So there's a page on Missouri Vital Records that states in the Family Search Wiki that original records are available on microfilm at the Missouri State Archives. Finally, I pretty much uh, search specifically at Google Books. I like to go directly to books.google.com and run the same search on the name and the different variables that we're talking about here. Because they have over 25 million digitized books. That's pretty incredible uh, database and it's free. So I searched for one of the ancestors names, Ben Esterline. And the first result was a listing in the annual report of the Bureau of the Mines, 1932. Now this is the year that Ben died. It says, Fatal accidents, lead and zinc mines, Ben Esterline, prospector. Now, this book is not fully digitized in Google Books. Some books aren't. It really depends on um, the copyright that they are dealing with. But if Lydia clicks libraries that have it on this page for this report, she's going to be taken to the card catalog listing at WorldCat, and that will show exactly where she can obtain it. And in fact, you can even put in your zip code for where you live, and it will tell you which of the repositories that has this book is closest to you. So that's pretty cool at worldcat.org. Now I know this is a lot to take in while you're listening. Just remember, the show notes has the links and the explanations that I just gave you. And you can learn everything that you need to know about Google searching, of course, in my book, the Genealogist Google Toolbox. It's a brand new second edition, came out in 2015, available through my store at genealogygems.com. Okay, on to the next part of this story. Now, after sharing Lydia's question and this Google search process in my weekly newsletter and on my blog, I heard back almost immediately from Kathy. And she said, Hello, Lisa, I thought I really must write and tell you that you've helped me clear up a long standing family mystery. My father was born on his grandfather's birthday, but his grandfather had died four years before my father was born, so he never knew him. The family story handed down was simply that the grandfather had been found drowned in a pond shortly before Christmas of 1909, a terrible tragedy. When I started tracing my family, I ordered the grandfather's death certificate. It wasn't very helpful. The coroner's inquest was held on Christmas Eve, and the death certificate just said, quote, insufficient evidence to state cause of death, unquote. Since then, I've searched for coroner's records with no success. But following your email, I thought I'd give it another go and follow your system for using Google. Well, I still haven't found the coroner's records, but I did find a couple of newspaper articles. And apparently, the body was found on the 21st of December, but he had been missing since June. I'd just like to thank you for starting my genealogy year off right and to wish you and yours all the best for 2016. I'm so pleased that Kathy immediately put to work 
the Google strategies on this cold case mystery in her family. And look at this, you know, it may not have brought up the coroner's inquest, but she found some newspaper articles. You never know what's out there. Those can be the meatiest sources for mysterious deaths like this, because the whole point of a newspaper article is to tell a story with as many details as they want to share. And that's so different from government employees filling in forms with limited information like death certificates or even a coroner's report. So they all work together to unveil the story. I will point out that in both Lydia's and Kathy's situations, Google didn't completely answer their initial questions, did they? But it certainly furthered their research in the right direction. Bring me a letter from my proud old dad Who knows that we are winning And I'll bet he's glad For more than any other You know, I always advise people to keep their master family trees at home on their own computers, not online. The family tree software I recommend is Roots Magic, and I'm pleased to announce that Roots Magic 7 is out and it's better than ever. Now, what do I love most about this new update? It's got to be the automatic hinting feature. It's like Google Alerts for genealogy websites. Roots Magic now automatically searches sites like FamilySearch and MyHeritage for possible matches to your tree. You're going to see light bulb hints appear whenever a match is found. Clicking the light bulb will open a web browser with matching records. They've got new accounts that let you easily publish and maintain multiple trees online, whether publicly or privately. And data management is easy with the new data clean feature that helps you quickly find and fix possible problems with names and places. Or use the file compare feature to look at two different trees side by side and transfer information between them. These are just some of the dozens of new enhancements. You can give it a try right away with no risk with the free edition called Roots Magic 7 Essentials. So what are you waiting for? Go to rootsmagic.com. You'll see pretty quickly why professionals and beginners alike choose Roots Magic. You know, now that I've moved to Texas and what they lovingly call Tornado Alley, I'm more aware than ever that if anything ever happened to my genealogy files, I would be devastated. And boy, have my files expanded since I started this research at the ripe old age of eight years old. As genealogists, we don't just have paper files anymore, but we also have digital files like our genealogy database and precious old photos that we've spent hours scanning. No matter where we upload our family tree or anything else relating to our family history on the web, the responsibility for the total safety and security of our files lies with us. That's why I'm so proud to announce that Backblaze is now the official backup of Lisa Louise Cook and Genealogy Gems. For the past few years, I've been researching and I've been test driving backup services and hands down, Backblaze is my choice. It's certainly the easiest service to use. And I love their free app that allows me to access all my files on my smartphone and my tablet. 
Plus, it backs up everything, including my video files. Yikes, I didn't realize before looking at Backblaze that other services skip over backing up videos. So don't wait another day to ensure that all your files are safe and secure. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head to backblaze.com slash Lisa and scroll down. You'll see my smiling face there and a great offer. Just 50 bucks for a year's peace of mind and the best cloud backup around. Go to backblaze.com slash Lisa. I love hearing from all of you gems out there. And recently, one of you wrote in with a legal genealogy question, so it just kind of made sense to invite Judy Russell, the legal genealogist, to the show to see if we can offer up some answers. Welcome to the podcast, Judy. Thank you so much, Lisa. Judy travels as much as I do, which means our paths, we cross at major conferences, uh, but we're usually teaching, and we rarely have time to kind of sit and chat. So I am really happy, Judy, that we get together today, and we have a very interesting genealogical topic to talk about. We certainly do. So there are many areas where genealogy and the law intersect. Um, Before we get to our listener's question, I'd like to ask you, what are the hot topics right now for you? What legal issues in genealogy just kind of keep you up at night? Well, you know, the one that that I think troubles genealogists more than any other, there are kind of two parts to this. One is is records access and Mm -hmm. the laws that either allow or don't allow us to see some of the records that we're particularly interested in. Um, sometimes we, we fight these issues and we win and we get access to records that we never had access to in the past. And sometimes we are actually losing access to records that had been open for anybody to review in the past. So records access is, I think, a very important issue for genealogists. If we're going to have any chance of winning records access fights, though, we have to be responsible in the way that we use records and use other people's work. So copyright and privacy mm-hmm. are, are real concerns and things that we as genealogists need to be very cognizant of, of just the golden rule that we treat everybody in our community and everybody whose information we come into contact with, with the same kind of dignity and privacy that we would want ourselves. Yes, absolutely. I I can't agree more. And I think as you're talking about it, you know, it's like 
giving back to the community just through our good works and our respect, like you say, for the records. And um, and then what, so what are some of the key areas or the record collections that you've seen lately that have been in danger or are no longer in danger? Um, I know there were some issues around the SSDI. What kinds of record collections have you got your eyes on? You know, on? The, the Social Security Death Index is probably one of the, the, the poster children for genealogical yeah. concern because we lost that fight. We right. lost access to the last three years of the Social Security Death Index. Now, for most of us, this is not a big problem. Most of us are a lot more concerned with people who died 300 years ago than three mm-hmm. years ago. But that's not true for everybody, for forensic genealogists, for people who are doing air searching, for the forensic genealogists who do military repatriations, where right. we have remains and we're trying to reunite those remains with the family to allow for a dignified burial. For those members of our community, losing access to those records is a horrible blow. Mm-hmm. Well, I, certainly I encourage everybody to follow the Legal Genealogist blog because Judy certainly keeps us abreast of all these things that are happening. And, and also, I know when you spot a way that people can help or chime in, uh, then you let people know about that. And that's well worth our time. Now, I'd love to shift gears a little bit and kind of pick your brain today, because we have a very interesting question from one of our genealogy gems out there. And I'd like to see if we can answer that and then sort of expand on the topic a little bit. So let me share here the initial question. It was sent in by Robert from Covington, Louisiana. And he writes, we have a copy of our great, great grandfather's bounty land warrant from the War of 1812. This has never been redeemed according to my family history. I have an affidavit from my grandmother dated 1911 stating the grant was lost or destroyed when she was a little girl being raised by her grandmother, the widow of one of the two brothers listed on the certificate. Her husband, one of those two, died before 1850, and therefore his will has no mention of the land grant. The certificate I have is a copy of a reissue by the Commissioner of Pensions. It's dated 1917. From the wording on the note of the commissioner scribbled on the copy he sent, it appears he hand-copied the information on file onto a blank certificate, and he certified the copy. Robert says, I have attached a copy of the certificate, which I've forwarded on to you, Judy, and, and those of you listening can check it out in the show notes says, we've sent a copy of the certificate that we have and a copy of what I have been able to fill in for what is not too legible. I have blanked out the family names and certificate numbers since it's not clear to me if it is or is not redeemable. And I don't have any control where this information may end up once committed to the internet. My main interest now is whether or not the certificate could still be good or if these grants have all timed out and none could therefore still be redeemable. I spent about a half a day researching on the internet, but could not find any information indicating grants were still redeemable after all this time. Gosh, this is a really interesting question. It's a um, wonderful question. Yeah. First, start off, maybe give us a little bit of background on these uh, land patents and what is bounty land? You know, back when we were 
getting involved in these minor little disagreements with the British, like the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, one thing that our very new country needed was manpower. We, yeah. we wanted to put men in uniform. And in order to convince people to serve, because, you know, let's face it, for most of our history, we didn't have a draft. How do you get people to agree to serve? And military bounty land was initially an enticement. If you will sign up and you will come fight this war, we will give you the right to land after the war is over. So for the War of 1812, the, the very first Bounty Land Act for the War of 1812 was passed actually at the end of, of 1811, and then a, a later statute that expanded the amount of acreage came a couple of years into the war. And then after the war, both Revolutionary War soldiers and War of 1812 soldiers would take up the land that they had been promised in return for their service. So it, it was an enticement for their service and then a reward for the service. And there's probably a benefit to the uh, the growing country to settle this western frontier, right? Not only a benefit, but particularly for the War of 1812 bounty lands, you couldn't just say, well, I really like that land in Nevada. <laughs> you were restricted to, um, my recollection is Arkansas, Missouri, and Illinois, specific areas where the government really wanted to increase the population. So, yeah, it was it was an enormous benefit to the country. It gave up something that we had an awful lot of, which was land. And in return, mm -hmm. it got settlers to move west. It got people to serve in the military. Perfect. Well, I know in Robert's case and in the documents that I sent you, there are a few different issues to consider here. Um, first, how do you research whether a law or a statute has expired? It sounds like he's he spent some time online and wasn't sure where to go. And the the real issue here is is that it's not an easy thing to do. It's a relatively easy bit of research to determine when the bounty land statutes were first passed. And for anybody who's doing federal statutory research, oh boy, have I got a resource for you. Awesome. The Library of Congress, the, the People's Library, has a website. The address is really easy. It's loc.gov, libraryofcongress.gov. And at that website, is an area called a century of lawmaking. And this is all of the legislative and statutory resources of our very young country, right from the adoption of the Constitution in 1787 up until the passage of the first, what are called revised statutes of the United States. The first time that instead of just being the statutes of a year, they're kind of organized by topic. And that final revised set of statutes was published in 1878. So a hundred plus years 
of federal statutory research can all be done at the Library of Congress website in this century of lawmaking for a new nation section. Oh, fantastic. So you can get a copy of that 1811 statute and you can look at the 1832 statute that changed it and you can go all the way up to the 1855 statute where the government said, okay, some people got 80 acres and some people got 40 acres and now we want everybody who's ever been entitled to get bounty land to have 160 acres. Mm -hmm. And that's really the last statute that gave people land and said how many acres. You can find the 1860 statute, which says, okay, if you lose your warrant, we'll give you a replacement. Mm -hmm. And you can find the 1864 statute. And it says, and I know Robert's going to like this, but Robert, (laughs) don't get excited because it does change. But in 1864, Congress says, you can exercise those bounty warrants, and I'm going to quote from the statute, without restriction or limitation as to the time, end quote. Isn't that terrific? Wow, so he's getting excited now. <laughs> and then you get, you get the revised code where they, they, you know, they organize things by topic now. And you get section 2417 of the revised code. And it says basically the same thing. It says all warrants for bounty lands may be located at any time. And then comes the but. Uh It says in conformity with the general laws in force at the time. So that means you got to go forward and trace this forward. And here... One way, you're not going to find anything after that revised code at the Library of Congress website. You're going to have to take that section number, that section 2417, and follow it forward and find out what changes were made. And if you do that, and you can, you can literally Google section 2417 and Bounty Land, it's going to bring you up to the modern... United States Code. These are the current federal statutes. And they're organized by title. They have numbers. And the title for Bounty Land is Title 43. It changed, though. And if you look at 43 United States Code Section 825 today, it says, we repealed this. Oh. And it, it gives you some very specific places to look to see what happened. And, and Robert's really going to be unhappy here because if they'd acted in 1917, they'd have been fine. The problem is in 1955, Congress said, wait a minute, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Now we don't have a whole lot of land left over. We we want to kind of shut this down. So in 1955, they passed a law and they said, look, if you have an outstanding warrant, you have to come forward and record it with the Interior Department. And they gave people two years to do it. So by the 5th of August, 1957, they closed it off. And they said, look, if you don't come forward 
by 1957, your document isn't going to be good to acquire land anymore. Wow. Then in, in 1962, they finally put a total end to this. At, at that point, they said, look, even if you did record your outstanding warrant between 1955 and 1957, what we're going to do in 1962 is buy it up. We're going to buy oh. it from you. Uh-huh. And they gave everybody a year to either accept the offer or lose. So from 1917 until 1955, if Robert's family had gone to the government, they could have gotten the land. In 1955, they would have had to record that unexpired warrant. And in 1962, the government would have bought them out for a grand total of $1.25 an acre. <laughs> you know, it's a great example that the law is not as simple as what day did it pass, what day did it get repealed. You're really talking about a path, aren't you, of, of legal precedent and things that occur along the way. We have to really travel the entire path Absolutely. to understand it. You know, I I have a mantra. It's like a chant that I do every single time I'm talking about this and that it's we can't understand the records if we don't understand the law. But it's not just the law in general. It's the law at the time in the place. Right. He had a perfectly good document in 1917. Mm -hmm. He's got a lovely piece of family history in 2015. Exactly. Something ready to be framed. But uh, it sounds like for $1.25 an acre, he didn't really lose that much. Not in 1962. But boy, in 1955, he could have still got the land. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, how fascinating. And how wonderful of you to trace that path for Robert and for all of us and really just give us that full view of it. Um, Let's go back just to quickly the War of 1812. I don't know much about bounty land laws and and all the things that were going on. You talked about the military service. Um, I think of bounty lands as, you know, particularly Revolutionary War time, that perhaps people may have been given land, but I didn't think about it with 1812. And and you have a, a special tie to, I think I've seen you on Facebook talking a lot about the records of 1812, and some of the efforts being made to preserve those. So just give us your spiel on 1812 and and how that affects the genealogy. Thank you so much for for giving me the opportunity. One of the most used record groups in the National Archives are the pension records from the War of 1812. On average, the numbers that I hear are somewhere in the neighborhood of 180,000 thousand pension applications. Now, some of them were successful, some of them were not. All of them have enormous genealogical value to us, particularly because you didn't first become eligible for a pension just because you served in the War of 1812 until 1871. Oh, wow. So, you're talking about widows and children coming in with fathers who have long been deceased and they're having to Mm -hmm. prove marriages and they're having to prove births and children's ages and all of this sort of stuff. So the 
genealogical documentation that was sent to the pension office to support these pension applications is stunning. There's no mm-hmm. word other than just stunning to describe these records. But because they're so genealogically valuable and because they're so old, they are fragile. They are in serious danger of being lost to us if they're not preserved in a form where they're going to be around for generations to come. So the Federation of Genealogical Societies took the lead in putting together a group called Preserve the Pensions. It's under the aegis of FGS, so it's you know, every penny that goes to it is tax deductible. It's a 501c3 organization, and the, every penny that goes to FGS under Preserve the Pensions gets matched. So if, if I submit a dollar, it's going to get matched first by Ancestry. And in some cases, if it's coming from one of the member organizations, it may even be matched by FGS as well. So, for example, at the New York State Conference just in September, um, at a luncheon, we raised thousands of dollars just by people putting money on the table. (laughs) Every penny was then matched by FGS, so it doubled it. And then that was matched by Ancestry for quadrupling effect. Fabulous. Every 45 cents means a page gets saved. Is Ancestry doing the digitization then, ultimately on this? The digitization is is certainly being done in part by them. The, The documents themselves are being put on... The website fold3.com, that's fold, F-O-L-D, the number three, dot com, and that is an Ancestry property. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to make it crystal clear, though, that the records are free. Everybody will be able to access all of these digitized records, and these are full-color scans, and they are always going to be free. That is fantastic news. So and preservethepensions.com is the place to go. Preservethepensions.com. It's a way that you listening can make a difference immediately and, and not just for your own research, but for the research of the genealogists to come, the ones that we're nurturing in the next generations. That's an exciting project and it's exciting what a difference genealogists can make. Let me just correct that. I'm I'm always having to stop and remind myself that some websites are .coms and some <laughs> websites are .orgs. Yeah. Preserve the pensions is .org. Preservethepensions.org. Oh, and we will have that in the show notes so with one click you can go over there and check it out as well. And of course tell us Judy where we can read your blog and your website address. I am a .com. <laughs> <laughs> it is simply legalgenealogist.com. Um, I try to write a blog post every day. Don't make it every day, but certainly five, six times a week on issues of legal genealogy, of DNA testing, and on Saturdays by Gari, I write about my family. Oh, nice. It's always nice to make a little time for our own folks. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? It's so true. 
Judy, what a pleasure. I am so glad that we've got an, an opportunity to sit down together and chat and, and share you with everybody listening here. And I'm sure that Robert will be very, maybe not happy with the outcome, but certainly happy with some conclusion around his um, dilemma with his documents. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Most of our relatives spoke a different language than we do today. And that means that records about their lives were created in other languages, too. Well, these language barriers can become huge brick walls in our genealogy research. We don't know how to translate ancestors' names, or we can't read the language that the record is written in. Well, MyHeritage.com has launched a new technology. It's called Global Name Transition to address this problem. Now you can search for historical records at MyHeritage in one language and receive relevant results from other languages automatically translated for you. So let's say you're searching for the name Alex. The system will search for variations like Alessandro and Alejandro and Aleski and even Sasha, which is a popular Russian nickname for Alexander. This technology is also integrated into MyHeritage matching technologies, so subscribers will begin receiving transliterated matches from other languages. The initial release of MyHeritage's global name translation works with English and most major European and Romance languages. That they can do this not just across languages, but also across diverse alphabets is mind-boggling. But I'm not surprised this is coming from MyHeritage. After all, one of their strengths that I love is their worldwide focus. Their platform serves over 40 languages, and their historical records and trees are arguably the most diverse available in the genealogy world. That's one reason that we are so proud that MyHeritage is a sponsor of the Genealogy Gems podcast, because our listeners and readers like you live all over the world and certainly have roots from all over the world. I know I do. Head to MyHeritage.com and get started today for free. That's MyHeritage.com. Hello, it's Sunny Morton, Genealogy Gems Book Club Guru. It's a new year. And I have a new book to announce for our No Commitment Genealogy Gems book club. Read it if you want to, or just listen to our exclusive interviews with fantastic authors of all kinds of books, fiction, memoirs, history, anything we think is a great read for someone who loves family history. I'm super excited about our first book for 2016. I've had this title cooking on the back burner now for several months. I've read it twice, and I've given a friend a copy as a gift, I really enjoyed this book. It's Orchard House, a memoir by Tara Austin Weaver. So Tara is probably best known as one of the world's foremost food bloggers. Her blog, Tea and Cookies, which is www.teaandcookiesblog.com, which will be in the show notes, 
has been called one of the top 50 food blogs in the world by more than one major newspaper and has gotten attention from a lot of major foodie outlets including the Food Network. So why Orchard House? Tara's recipe for Orchard House is one part food, one part gardening, and two parts family drama, liberally seasoned with humor and introspection. Let me say, first of all, it is a mouth-watering experience to read about food from someone who knows how to write about food, and Tara does. She also writes about growing food with a passion that inspired even me, the only person in my family who doesn't love to garden. But the story of her garden is really also the story of the rebuilding of her relationship with her mother and with her brother and his family. It's about just what the book's subtitle says how a neglected garden taught one family to grow. So I find it impossible to read a book without reading the book jacket first. So I'm going to give you a summary here of Orchard House from the publishers. And I quote, Peeling paint, stained floors, vine-covered windows, a neglected and wild garden. Tara can't get the Seattle real estate listing out of her head. Any sane person would see the abandoned property for what it was, a ramshackle half-acre filled with dead grass, blackberry vines, and trouble. But Tara sees potential and promise, not only for the edible bounty the garden could yield for her family, but for the personal renewal she and her mother might reap along the way. So begins Orchard House, a story of rehabilitation and cultivation of land and soul. Through bleak winters, springs that sputter with rain and cold, golden days of summer, and autumns full of apples, pears, and pumpkins, this evocative memoir recounts the weaver's trials and triumphs, what grew and what didn't, the obstacles overcame, and the lessons learned. Inexorably, as mother and daughter tend this wild patch and the fruits of their labor begin to flourish, green shoots of hope emerge from the darkness of their past. For anyone who has ever planted something they wished would survive, or tried to mend something that seemed forever broken, Orchard House is a tale of healing and growth, set in the most unlikely place. So that's what the publishers say. Orchard House has gotten some really nice reviews, and it's an easy, easy read. As I said, I've read through it twice myself already. The second time through, I started underlining passages to ask Tara about in our interview, which you'll hear in March. Just a reminder about that, if you love to read, or even if you just enjoy listening to these Genealogy Gems book club interviews, you'll want to make sure your Genealogy Gems premium website membership is up to date. We do play excerpts from the interview in this free Genealogy Gems podcast, but it's our premium members who will get to hear the entire delectable conversation with Tara Austin Weaver and our other featured authors in 2016. If you are coming to Roots Tech 2016 in Salt Lake City in a few weeks, come find me at the Genealogy Gems booth, number 1230, in the Exhibitor Hall. Thursday morning from 10 to 11, we're hosting a special book club open house. Stop by and chat with me and Lisa and the rest of the Genealogy Gems team about books or about family history, about both... We will have free bookmarks, display copies of some of the books we featured, and a chance to win a great book club prize just for suggesting a book. So again, our book for the first quarter of 2016, Orchard House, by Tara Austin Weaver. Bon appétit.
Profile America, Friday, January 1st. The place where many of our ancestors first stepped ashore when they came to America seeking a new life opened on this date in 1892, Ellis Island in New York Harbor. The very first immigrant processed at the new facility was a 15-year-old Irish girl named Annie Moore. Over the course of more than 60 years, some 12 million people flowed through the center. Some sources say the number is considerably higher. The peak year was 1907 when just over a million immigrants came to Ellis Island. The complex now belongs to the National Park Service and is visited by several million people a year. In 1910, the foreign born represented nearly 15% of America's population. Now, after falling through 1970, that figure sits at 12.9%. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. I think it's interesting that Ellis Island, which now belongs to the National Park Service, is visited by several million people a year. I know they're not all genealogists, at least not officially. Yet I bet if you asked around, many who visit there could tell you stories that have been handed down about the immigrants and their families, or they wish they knew more about them. And that's what we do. We find their stories. We piece them together. We record them. We share them. We give our people back their history, including those who do want to know, but haven't yet gone looking themselves. Along the way, we discover so much about ourselves. We identify ancestral heroes and connect with them. And we learn so many fascinating things about the past, whether it's about the bounty land that they never claimed, or an unexplained and tragic drowning in a local pond, or the DNA that's been divided in so many different ways among each child in a family. Here's to finding your family history and sharing it with those that you love in 2016 and beyond. So until next episode, thanks for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.